0: Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Frank C. Baxter. Who steals my purse steals trash, but he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. William Shakespeare said that. CBS Radio, a division of the Columbia Broadcasting System and its 217 affiliated stations, present the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, transcribed, the workshop presents its first colloquy, featuring the eminent teacher of Shakespeare, Dr. Frank C. Baxter, professor of English at the University of Southern California, who in turn will introduce his special guest, Dr. Baxter. Thank you and good evening. For some time now, many of us have been fascinated by a controversy unique in the annals of literature. Stated simply, the question is, who wrote the works of William Shakespeare? Articles have been carried in our most popular magazine. Eminent scholars have debated and debunked, almost everybody has a theory. So, in the interest of true scientific research, in an effort to settle this knotty problem once and for all, we have invited as our special guest tonight the distinguished author, Mr. William Shakespeare. How do you do? I trust you had a pleasant journey, Mr. Shakespeare? Aye, and with more comfort, and in less time than once it took to fork a palfrey from Stratford up to London. A half a day from old England to the brave new world. The time, to be sure, is out of joint, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, time travels in diverse paces with diverse persons. That's an as-you-like-it, Act 3, Scene 2. Yes, I know. Well, uh, Will, if I may call you Will? Will it as you will. Thank you. Will, there have, from time to time, been questions raised as to whether you actually wrote the plays and poems which bear your name. No, it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Be that as it may... That's why we've asked you to be with us tonight, to shed some light on this clouded controversy. I shall be glad to help, though in truth the matter galls me. As indeed it well might. Believe me, it is no flattering unction to my soul. Have you the slightest notion how many candidates have been nominated to fill my buskins? Well, there's Sir Francis Bacon, of course, and Edward Dyer, and the Earl of Oxford. And three more earls, Southampton, Rutland, and Derby. Then there's Sir Walter Raleigh... It was even a woman, I believe. Oh, spare the mark, the delicate Countess of Pembroke. And don't forget my contemporary scriveners. Decker, Haywood, Webster, Peel, Nash. How do you account for such confusion of claims, Will? There were no such things as copyrights in my day. A writer was commissioned by a company of players to write a play. He did so, he was paid for it, and that was the end of it. How much was he paid? Well, that would depend. Um, six, seven, eight pounds. Ten pounds was most generous, about $500 in your money. Oh, $500 seems very little for all the rights to a play. It was, and therefore a writer had to do other things to eke out a living. I myself was an actor as well as a shareholder in the company. Your company was called the King's Men, wasn't it? Yes. You see, it was absolutely necessary in those days for an acting company to be patronized by a nobleman or a member of royalty. Why was that? But if he were not so sponsored, the law demanded that the lobe of his right ear be pierced by a red-hot iron of the circumference of an inch. Well, apparently it wasn't exactly respectable to be an actor in your time. Is it in yours? Hmm. Well, even today we find it better to have a sponsor. (laughs) Ah, exactly. As members of the King's Company, we enjoyed many privileges, not granted to less eminent groups. But with these privileges went the obligation to maintain our eminence, to please not only the court, but the crowd. In other words, we had to produce hits and, almost every day, a different play. I see. You didn't then know the luxury of long run. Oh, indeed not. Our public was as fickle as it was avid. Therefore, our theater was voracious, a gluttonous maw into which we crammed play after play. Somewhat like our movies today or our radio, television. Well, uh, somewhat. Certainly the audiences gave not a fig for high passion. They clamored for clowns and loved the lewd and bawdy lines. Do you think Richard or Henry V or the Merchant of Venice were enough to fill the bellies and pay the lodgings of my company? Indeed not, sir. We knew the sheriff as well as many a theatrical company that came after us. Else why do you think that I wrote those banal vulgarities? Banal vulgarities, the plays? Which do you mean, for instance? Why, much ado about nothing. Which indeed is all it was. And as you like it, which is to say, not as I liked it. Will, these are still among the most often performed of all your works. Need I argue for the proof? No, but they still play your other works, too. Will, this week, for instance, Romeo and Juliet, Kiss Me Kate, are being revived in New York. Kiss Me Kate? tis no play of mine. Oh, yes, it is. You called it The Taming of the Shrew. Then why was its title changed? Oh, they fixed it up and set it to music. Oh, perfidy. It makes money, Will. Oh. Was theater attendance good in your day? Not bad when you consider that two out of fifteen Londoners attended the theatre every week. And there were no less than a hundred poets and playwrights writing words that you still read today. That's remarkable. But, Will, were you really one of those hundred playwrights and poets? Why, of course I was. My two long poems, Venus and Adonis, and The Rape of Lucrece attest to it. To say nothing of the hundred and fifty-four sonnets, I was indeed, sir, a poet... A poet. But the plays. Your name is known today chiefly for the plays. The plays. Oh, poor foundlings, conceived in need and born in the desperate rush to feed the insatiable appetite of the sweating mob. A manuscript dashed off by candlelight, its parts extracted by a scribe, and the only copy serving the prompters as long as the play pleased the crowd. What happened to the manuscript after that? Ah, who knows? Perhaps it remained in the theatre or found its way to an actor's trunk, marked and smudged with the arrogant changes of a dozen performances. Perhaps it was sold for waste to a butcher or a fishmonger to wrap up a slice of veal or an evening kipper. The playwright neither knew nor cared. He was, if that strumpet fortune smiled upon him again, working on his next play. But this seems incredible, these great plays. (laughs) Oh, good Dr. Baxter. Have you a copy of all the scripts that you have ever broadcast? Or even yet a copy of every lecture you have made? Well, I see what you mean. Who knows how many plays were reduced to black and ash the afternoon the Globe Theatre went up in flames. Not I, for one. As I remember, it was during a performance of your Henry VIII that the Globe caught fire. I. Some varlet boy tending the cannon that heralded the entrance of the king let flame and powder reach themselves. And ere night fell, the Globe, my theatre... It was a stinking mass of smoking ashes. A dozen years of my life were in the globe. Across its boards first trod Hamlet, Othello, Lear, Macbeth. It was the birthplace of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra's cradle. The date was consumed in fire. The theater having quit me, I quit the theater. I never wrote another play, sir. Another? Did you ever write one, Will of Stratford. I beg your pardon, sir. Who are you? Tis Kit Marlowe, most recent of the thieves who seek to steal my name. Christopher Marlowe? The Marlowe who wrote Tamburlaine and Dr. Faustus and the Jew of Malta? Aye, sir. Marlowe of the mighty line. I've been listening to this drivel on the wireless in yon tavern... ...till my gut could stand no more. This imposter, this clown, must be answered... And I'm here to demand equal time to that which you've granted the poet ape of Stratford. Equal time, aren't you? I believe that is the custom with your modern theater of electronic witchcraft. Indeed, sir, it is. Come in. Welcome. Uh, Our time is your time, or at least part of it. Uh, you understand, good sir, I can no longer stand silent whilst this, this, uh, unlettered bumpkin, this supporting player palms himself off as the brightest jewel to grace the crown of England's renaissance. Then it was you, Christopher Marlowe, who wrote the plays of William Shakespeare. Who else? I thought you were murdered in a tavern brawl in the very year that Will Shakespeare published his Venus and Adonis, the year of Richard Third in the Comedy of Errors. <laughs> Good professor, not you too. Murdered, I, <laughs> You've let your reading slip however much you've taught your classes. There were reasons enough why I should disappear. Reasons which yet I dare not fully tell. But murdered, <laughs> not I. It was another. A likely tale. Likelier than the monstrous myth that a countryman unschooled and uneducated could have written the works which bear the name of Shakespeare. Tis true you will not find my plays as scholarly as yours, Kid oh. Marlowe. Tis true I knew little Latin and less Greek. Oh. I was better acquainted with people than I was with books. Oh. Master Marlowe, since you insist that history lies in telling us that you were murdered at the age of twenty nine, perhaps you'd be good enough to tell us what did happen to you. That I will, sir. I'm gladly. My friend, Sir Thomas Walsingham. Oh, that one. Arranged the deception. Having had some unknown and worthless varlet murdered, he gave forth the word 'twas I who died. Then, all secured, I made my way to France, and thence south to Italy, where I learned the manners and the customs of those distant lands. Well, incidentally, I gathered background material for Romeo and Juliet. Oh, what a lying rogue and peasant slave is he? I wrote that, yes. And other comedies and tragedies which I produced under the name of an obscure actor called William Shakespeare. But why use my name? Well, mine I could not use. Being still suspect and with a price upon my head... Uh, Wanted, I believe, is the current phrase. So why not your name, since you were nothing, nobody, zero? Then why did you not attribute your own Tamborlaine the Great to me? Well, really? Uh, Now that it has flopped so dismally on Broadway. The Saturday Review called it a piece of classic theatre.
1: I have the notices. Mm -hmm. They look excellent. Uh, Uh, uh,
0: Master Marlowe uses the latest name to enter the list of claimants for the works that we know as Shakespeare's. Perhaps you'd like to take this opportunity to substantiate that claim. Indeed, I would, sir. That is, in fact, why I'm here. Therefore, hark ye. In Edward II, under my own name, I wrote, Weep not for Mortimer that scorns the world, and as a traveler goes to discover countries yet unknown. And then I wrote Hamlet, using the name of Shakespeare, in which you find these words, The Undiscovered Country from Whose Born No Traveler Returns. (laughs) You notice the similarity? Mm, not exactly. Discover, undiscover. Very like. Nevertheless, Master Marlowe's claim is seriously presented, the result of years of somebody's thought. That indeed it is, sir, but to pursue the point. Note again, in Edward II, the line, How now, why droops the earl? And as Shakespeare in Henry IV, Part Two: Why droops me lord like over-ripened corn? At least you had learned to make a simile when next you stole from yourself. <sighs> Once more, in Edward II, I say, I arrest you of high treason. And using Shakespeare's name in Henry VIII, I wrote, I arrest thee of high treason. But if you must arrest a man of high treason, is there a simpler way of saying it? Though it is clear that my way is more graceful. No, I could go on. And onward he will go, unless somewhat stopped by lack of breath or the roving eye of a passing wench. Is there no way, good Dr. Baxter, to bring an end to it? Not an end, but the middle. For here, as is the custom in our CBS Radio Workshop colloquy, we pause for a short announcement. You are listening to Colloquy One, the first in a series of discussion programs to be presented from time to time as part of the CBS Radio Workshop. This evening, our special guest is Dr. Frank C. Baxter, professor of English at the University of Southern California, who is interviewing the noted author, William Shakespeare. Once again, here is Dr. Baxter. And we have an unexpected but very provocative guest, Christopher Marlowe, the great Elizabethan playwright, and the most recent of a score of Shakespeare's contemporaries who claim to have written his work. Well, can there be any rational argument against such overwhelming proof? I would not mm-hmm. deign to dignify such syllogistic sophistry. Your pardon, sirs. Yes, were you looking for someone? I am told by the warders of your gate that somewhere within a colloquy is being held. Is this the place? Well, it is, but I'm... Then permit me. I am Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. And you, sir? I am the first Francis Baxter of South Pasadena at your service, my lord. Oh, we are well met, sir. Well, Shakespeare. Your lordship's looking well. Indeed, somewhat better than when we last met. If I recall, it was at the Globe in the spring of 1604, and you were playing as was your wont. The ghost of Hamlet's father. Indeed I was. Though I must confess your lordship picked a bad day to see the play. I was way off that afternoon. Oh, tut tut, goodbye man. You played it well as I intended it should be played when I wrote it. Mm -hmm. You wrote it? I don't believe that I've had the honor. Oh, Oh, pardon me, your lordship. May I present Christopher Marlowe. Ah, yes, Marlowe. Informer, spy, pederast, and sometimes privy. I Ah, but the maristal
1: sycophant, spineless ornament of a dick It's gentlemen, Easy please.
0: to see why Marlowe's mighty line was ended so early and so violent. I demand this ignorant valley be removed. No, I
1: grace the halls of Cambridge more brilliantly than ever you, the university would bear your name. My, My name old sorry, School ties oh, the current oh, phrase. Is it yes, not?
0: approximately? Let's call it school spirit. An Sir, Master Marlowe has as much right here as you. These days, we make much of a man's right to speak his mind without fear or reprisal. Of what use, then, the stock, the rack, and the pillory? None. Any longer. Ours is an enlightened age. And so was ours. But we had ways to curb the vagrant tongues of churls. We found out that if we let them wag their vagrant tongues long enough, they end by hanging themselves. It is passing strange. What? So, my lord, you've come here to present your case. In all truth would be beneath me to plead a case for writings tossed off in a moment of whim and consumed with eagerness beyond credulity by a tasteless public. Were it not for an American gentleman who discovered my secret, I would not be here. But uh, since he has gone to such lengths to prove the truth I know so well, I feel it only fair to him to present here the arguments he has advanced in my favor, and thus set injustice right, and prevent either a brawling tippler or an Avonian peasant from claiming... What is my due? Oh, your due? A- an American gentleman, you say? Oh, yes, yes. Because he who more than 30 years ago revealed in a book called Shakespeare Identified. It was I, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, who was indeed the author of the works which for nearly 400 years have been attributed to this strolling player, Eclept Shakespeare. And how was this American gentleman Eclept? Looney was his name, J. Thomas Looney. Did you say Looney? I did, sirrah. L-O-O-N-E-Y, Looney. That's what I thought you said. And how did Mr. Looney arrive at his conclusions? Oh, by deduction. He decided that Shakespeare's works could only have been written by a mature man of recognized genius. An unconventional man not adequately appreciated. A lyric poet of recognized talent. A man of superior classical education. And finally, an aristocrat. A gentleman. Whose image fits within this frame? Who? But mine. (laughs) Surely, surely, (laughs) sir. Surely there were others in London at the time who could meet these specifications. Perhaps. But remember Mr. Looney's insistence that his man be a lyric poet of recognized talent. And you were such a one? Oh, good master. And you call yourself professor of English literature? Wist ye not this jewel? If women be fair and yet be fond or that their love were firm and fickle. Still, I would not marvel that they make men bond. I I service long to purchase their goodwill, but when I see how frail those creatures are, I muse that men forget themselves so far. What say ye to that, sir? Very pretty, very pretty indeed. For my own part, it was Greek to me. The subject's women. Aye, there's a topic to task a poet's muse. A worthy topic. A pallet for passion. A right and proper challenge for Marlowe's mighty line. Hark! Here's a woman for you, lads. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Uh, her lips suck forth my soul. See where it flies. Come, Helen, come give me my soul again. Here will I dwell, for heaven be in these lips, and all is dross that is not Helena, and none but thou shall be my paramour dross, indeed. Uh, you quote yourself very well, Master Marlowe. No, it uh, offends me to the soul to hear a robustious, periwig painted fellow tear a passion to tatters, to very rags. I, <laughs> I, With presumption, you may lay claim to my work, but in all assurance, I would never put my name on yours. Uh, well said, that, Master Will. You speak of love. Oxford with cynical doubt. Marlowe with proud lechery. Oh, you Bear with me, Gentles. Let me not, to the marriage of true minds, admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when its alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Ah, it is one of my favorites and has been since the day I wrote it. Good Dr. Baxter, let us be done and finished. I care not what others such as these may say. I know who wrote the works of Shakespeare. And who might that be, Sir Francis Bacon? A lawyer. The most unkindest cut of all. (laughs) No matter what he might have been. The Viscount St. Albans was not a poet. Not ever claimed to be. Oh, Bacon, the Lord Berulam, not above eavesdropping. I had been content to stay without this colloquy. Had not my name been mentioned. Ah, you started the tongues to wagging. You will let loose the dogs of Rumour, my Lord High Chancellor. Not I, gentle will. I lay no pretensions to any man's works of my own. No will. You really do Sir Francis an injustice. Just as an American presented the Earl of Oxford, and more recently another American put forth Kit Marlowe, so it was an American lady a hundred years ago who proposed that Sir Francis was the moving spirit behind your works, and her name was Miss Delia Bacon. No relative of mine let the record show. (laughs) The record so shows. Don't you remember, Will, how she used to spend nightly vigils on your tomb? A hundred years ago. Ah, yes slow memory knits the rabbled sleeve of time. <laughs> a most disturbing woman. More ghost than I. Yes, after she published her book, The Philosophy of Shakespeare's Plays Unfolded, she requested permission of the mayor of Stratford to open your tomb. Is there no peace? Everybody wants to open a tomb. But the mayor refused, and perhaps because of it, shortly afterward, she became quite mad, died in a lunatic asylum. But where all who doubt me belong in truth, sir? Oh, now, wait just a minute, Will. A man named George Townsend, a staunch supporter of yours, who wrote an answer to Miss Bacon's book, also became mad and committed suicide. And you ask me, who's a loony? The Baconians have flourished ever since. They claim to have found cryptograms in the Shakespeare text, which prove your authorship, Sir Francis. Indeed, well. They form societies and publish papers. They're quite sincere, almost fanatical about you. Some claim that you live to be 107, and there are extremists who insist that you still live today in some pleasant English country house, writing immortal works, which someday will be revealed to us. <laughs> I must aver that I am indeed dead, quite dead, and have been these past 330 years. In fact, I caught my death of cold collecting snow, with which I intended to stuff a fowl. Why, pray? I, I was a scientist. To test the effectiveness of cold in the preservation of organic substances. Yes, yes. By this you anticipated the principle of modern refrigeration. Exactly. I am well content to have left behind me my essays and my philosophic writing. To know that my major work, the Novum Organum, released the world from the tyranny of Aristotelian philosophy and paved the way for modern science. My life was full and richly rewarding. I had no cause to wish myself renowned in a metier in which you are supreme, Master Will. I believe you with all my heart, my
1: lord. <laughs> Old say, an end to petty quarrels and fruitless bickering. Who writes the play to small import? Who plays it? Brings to life the art. I, the play's the thing, but a poor thing indeed without the actor. Uh, you, Burbage? Burbage? You're Richard
0: Burbage, the first great Shakespearean actor?
1: Marry that I am, sir, Richard Burbage, star of the Globe Theatre, but more, much more than Burbage... I was Othello, the dusky moor destroyed by the jealous perfidy of Iago. I was Macbeth the murderer. I was the tortured and tottering Lear, the misunderstood and victimized Shylock. I was the paragon of the pit and the god of the galleries. It was for me that Will Shakespeare wrote his plays. And twere not for me, none of you would be met tonight in this futile discourse. For it was I who gave the name of Shakespeare its first bright luster... Say Will, are not the Prince of Denmark's moods but scrawls on paper without the voice of Richard Burbage for whom they were created?
0: Far rather would I agree with thee, friend Burbage, than list the vain and maundering arguments of these literary opportunists. Therefore, once more, good friend, speak the speech, I pray you, as I did write it
1: for you. Huh. <clears throat> <clears throat> to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether 'tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die. To sleep. No more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to is a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die. To sleep. To sleep. the chance to dream. Ay, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes? when he himself might his quietus make with a bare butkin, who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dream of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose bourn no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have Then fly to others we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with a pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment With this regard, the currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Oh, let there be an end on it, good Dr. Baxter. Tis an
0: argument I fear will run across eternal tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow to the last syllable of recorded time and never find its proper settlement. I say, a plague on all their houses. Come on then, Will. Though we boast no mermaid tavern in Hollywood, there's a quiet little place across the street from the studio where the landlord might well find a stoop of ale or a cup of running. Come then, good my friends, let us tarry here no longer. They've gone, all of them, back into an ancient past. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleeve. You have been listening to an interview with William Shakespeare, featuring Dr. Frank C. Baxter, and produced and directed by William Frug. Our transcribed colloquy was written by William N. Robeson, with additional dialogue by William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, Sir Francis Bacon, and the 17th Earl of Oxford. Additional research by Professor Frank W. Wadsworth of the Department of English, University of California, Los Angeles. Ben Wright was William Shakespeare. Hans Conrad was Christopher Marlowe. Ramsey Hill was the Earl of Oxford. Jane Novello was Sir Francis Bacon. And William Conrad was Richard Burbage. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to listen next week to The Voice of New York, narrated by Clifton Fadiman. A unique venture in giving dramatic form and poetic mood to the actual sounds of New York City. Presented on the CBS Radio Workshop. Vera Zorina will narrate three poems of Baudelaire. Isaac Stern will be violin soloist. And Dimitri Metropolis will conduct the orchestra in works of Glinka, Prokofiev, Lieberman, and Liszt. When the New York Philharmonic Symphony offers another brilliant concert this Sunday. Be sure you're listening for the Philharmonic Symphony on Sunday over most of these same stations. America listens most to the CBS radio network.